As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get the week started in a very, very good way. We can do that with Laurie Calvacina, the head of US equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, I saw your latest note, and I think it's an important one to address. Can you establish a major bottom before we've seen the big EPS forecast cuts? Uh, the truth of the matter, John, you is, and I keep getting that. I, I keep I keep getting that question from clients, and it's not only that you can get the market bottom while earnings estimates are coming down, but if you go back and you look at major periods of stress, like the tech bubble, like 2018, like the 2015-2016 industrial recession, that is often the case that the stock market puts in a bottom several months while you, before you actually flip back into positive revision territory. So I'm not sitting here telling you that reducing earnings estimates further isn't going to be a headwind for the market. I think that it is. But in my mind, it's something that causes us to merely retest the June lows, maybe take another swing low at them. But I think we probably did put the low for the cycle in place in June. Lori, where is sentiment this morning? So someone asked me this question last week, and I said, you know, 85% of the people I talk to are still bearish, about 15% are bullish. It did feel like, you know, maybe over the last couple weeks, that bullish co- co- cohort grew from about 5 to 15%. But if you look at the CFTC data and just want to get the quantitative read, I think that sentiment in NASDAQ has become euphoric again. Futures positioning is getting close to the highs that we've seen in recent years. But if you look at something like small cap, the Dow futures, or even S&P futures, we are still very much in the early days of recovering off of an extreme low. In the case of small cap and the Dow, off of new lows that were below pan, or below a great financial crisis lows. So I think it's a bit of a mix. I think there are some pockets of euphoria, but I do think overall positioning has still been pr- pretty depressed, and sentiment reflects that. Lori, what's going to drive small caps higher at a time when you see consumer sentiment falling off a cliff and consumer spending, while still resilient, showing signs of weakening pretty much across the board? So I think the issue with small caps is that they have very clearly baked in a recession at this point in time. Uh, We've gone through a bunch of the numbers. Um, What we have seen essentially is that if you look at small caps against jobless claims, they're already baking in a pretty big spike from here, even with the recent move that we've seen up in small cap recently. 
Small caps are also baking in a trough-like move, a plunge really in ISM manufacturing that hasn't happened yet. It's probably coming. It's baked into the small cap stocks. Um, but I think the other issue that we see is that historically, longer-term investors know that recessions are usually good buying opportunities for small cap. They sniff out the pain early on. They sniff out the recovery early on. And at the end of the day, small cap is really, I think, the one part of the market that has clearly baked in uh, an economic downturn. Lori, over my break, I was thinking a lot about the talk about reshoring or onshoring a lot of manufacturing from China, from Asia, in response to some of the supply chain disruptions. Is this more talk than action? Are you actually seeing this on the ground with small caps? So I don't think we're seeing it in a massive way yet, but I will tell you, Lisa, in my recent travels with investors, that issue is something that small cap portfolio managers are highly engaged on and highly focused on, particularly when it comes to the industrial sector. And there is a view out there from professional money managers who specialize in this space that that will ultimately be a good thing for the small cap industrial stocks. It may ultimately be challenging for margins for the bigger cap companies, um, but there is a view that this is something that's going to be a tailwind for the small cap space and hasn't really played out yet. Laurie, I've got you at 4,200 year end on the S&P 500. I've got the market on Friday at the close at 4,228. What now? What do you tell clients? So, look, I think that the argument that valuations are too high right now, I think that's kind of a thin argument for saying we got to peak out right now. I do think it's a concerning data point. It rains in my enthusiasm through the end of the year. We're close to 20 times my numbers for next year and this year. Um, but I do think that, you know, these are year end targets, John. We're trying to guess where the market is going to be on December 31st, not the high it's going to achieve this year. So I do think that we're setting up for further volatility in the very short term, especially if we get favorable messages at the end of the week from Powell. I could see this thing going just a little bit longer, just based on how low and extreme the positioning has been. But I do think if we're being intellectually honest, we have to set up for some choppiness and volatility through the end of the year. Laurie, awesome. As always, Laurie Cavasina there of RBC Capital Markets. Right now, we get a voice on China. Ian Shepherdson joins us. We could talk 15 things with the chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, but the duration of his Chinese slowdown is jaw-dropping. Ian Shepherdson models out 24 months, it's 3 and 5%, make it 4% China GDP. What does that do, Ian, to the labor mandate that Beijing needs and has? Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, we just cut our China forecast. We just don't see any bottom yet to the real estate disaster. Prices falling, volumes falling, uh, no sign of a fix coming through. And it's a huge chunk of the economy. It's been a big engine of growth for the, the last couple of decades. Uh, and it has not found a floor yet. So it's going to put real pressure on the labor market, real pressure on the authorities. And I think the bottom line is that there'll have to be some substantial policy action from the center, from Beijing, right. because the local authorities who effectively right now are being tasked with dealing with this mess just don't have the resources. So the central government, which is resisting, uh, eventually is going to have to fold, is going to have to step in with a lot of public money uh, and, and try and put a floor under the, under the problem. Because if they don't, they're going to find a, a, an economy that is way, way weaker than they want for a very extended period. And that's a threat. That's a real threat to them. It's a threat to the global economy as well, because obviously China is such a big right. part of global growth, especially uh, through the manufacturing sector. And the ambiguities of inflation, Ian Shepardson, do they they export disinflation and deflation, thus making some of the inflation fear calls of the West maybe overwrought. 
Yeah, at the margin. I mean, you know, Ch Chinese inflation, PPI inflation, which passes through into Europe and into the US, you know, is really rolling over now. No question about that. But I think it's important to appreciate that the bulk of the inflation shock in the US especially, but, but also in Europe, um, apart from energy, in the core, has been through margin expansion uh, uh, you know, in, in the retail services sector. So uh, that's not really China contingent. That's really been more a story of, of booming consumer spending against constrained supply. But you know, right now, central banks everywhere will take anything they can get. And if a, you know, the slowdown in inflation in China gives them a little bit of room for maneuver, that, that's great. But it's not going to be the heart of the, of the disinflation story in the US over the next year. And of course, Europe is still struggling with the, the energy inflation shock, which is much bigger uh, and is likely to be much more persistent. So we've still got some really big problems. Well, let's talk about UK's whaler. And I don't own the rights to that one. In how bad are things going to get in the UK and across <laughs> Europe for that matter too? <laughs> well, Europe's in recession now already. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty obvious now. We see that lasting for a while. The ECB's still going to hike because, you know, the, uh, the German influence on the anti-inflation story is very intense, so we're going to get at 50 bips at the next <coughs> meeting. UK is different. I mean, I think there's a reasonable chance that inflation, sorry, recession can be averted, but only if the new prime minister, who presumably will be Liz Truss in two weeks' time, uh, takes some more drastic action to bail out households from the energy price shock. So... And now that isn't a promise right now. It's a forecast, and you know I could be wrong. They might not do it, which would be crazy given the pressure the households are under. And that probably would mean the UK would end up in recession later this year. But right now, I kind of think the politics points them towards doing something more aggressive, effectively handing households more money, and with a bit of luck, uh, that will allow the the consumer sector to just tick over through the second half of the year and prevent a recession. But it's going to be a close-run thing, and of course the Bank of England is still going to be raising rates. So there's a real squeeze going on there, which uh, is unlikely to abate anytime soon. So you know, just avoiding recession, that's not the same as a forecast of everything being okay. It, it isn't. And it isn't going to be okay for the foreseeable future in, in the UK. Uh, because you know, even if the energy price thing goes away, you've still got the lingering catastrophe that is Brexit dragging the whole economy down, uh, for, essentially for the foreseeable future. Ian, it's a low bar looking across Europe. Just how low is the bar in Europe? Can they afford recession? Well, they've got one now. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably not going to be very deep or very long, though that does depend to some extent on what happens to energy prices. But, uh, but they're in, in, in recession already. Uh, and um, you know, I, it, a turnaround probably will come at some point next year, but we've got to get through the worst of it first. So things are a real mess. There's no growth momentum anywhere uh, in Europe. The only place where I can see any growth momentum coming through before the end of the year is probably in the US. And even there, it's going to be patchy because the housing markets are catastrophe. Manufacturing is under pressure uh, from the businesses being nervous about energy prices, but it's nowhere near as bad as it is in Europe. And I think that the US is going to avoid recession quite comfortably, which of course is why markets are getting nervous, because they're now thinking, well, you know, the US isn't going to move into recession, uh, and the Fed is not yet talking dovishly, so we've seen this upward pressure on yields again. Ian, you're making me sound rosy. I'm thinking about this. Housing is a catastrophe. Nothing is positive in Europe. At what point has this been priced in already? And at what point is this uh, something that requires a much broader and more drastic repricing of risk assets across the board? 
Well, that's a good question. I think a lot of this is, is priced in. I mean, if, you, if you're not expecting a recession in, in, in Europe now, you, you probably haven't been paying attention. So I think that, that story is pretty well understood now. Uh, the question is, you know, what, what do we get out of it? I mean, the, the problem, the fundamental problem for Europe is that the rise in energy prices has made everyone in Europe poorer. There's no way to avoid that. You know, it's, it's cutting interest rates or pushing money into people's pockets through fiscal policy is just delaying the inevitable and hiding the truth, which is that an energy price shock in an energy consuming region makes everyone poorer uh, and makes the economy weaker and hits corporate earnings and there's just no way to avoid this. You can work through it, you can ameliorate some of the worst impacts of it, but you can't get away from the fundamental fact that if you're an energy user and energy prices go up, you're poorer. Uh, and this is much worse in continental Europe than it is in the UK and it's uh, it's uh, it's much less bad in the US and then gas prices are now falling very sharply. But Europe's at the front and centre of this because of Ukraine uh, and because of their energy policy over the last 20 years and they're going to be paying for it for a long time. And so risk assets in this environment, you know, it, it's, it's, very di it's very difficult and it's probably not going to be a very quick turnaround. Ian, we talk about the United States and how it's in a better situation. A lot of the notes that I've been reading have been talking about the inventory glut that a lot of uh, analysts are expecting at companies, including uh, big retailers, that have ordered too much stuff and that this will be disinflationary heading into year end. How much will this be a disinflationary force? How much will this take some of the pressure off the Fed? Yeah, this is the thing I'm, I'm watching more closely than pretty much anything else, because when we had the inventory shortages last year, what we saw was a gigantic widening of retailers' margins, because effectively people were bidding for whatever inventory they could find, especially uh, in, in the vehicle market where, where retail dealers' margins tripled. I mean, that, that's an official number. Retail auto dealers' margins tripled across last year. Now, that leaves them at a ridiculously overextended level. So now that auto production is rising because the chips are available again, and now that we've had all this retail inventory arriving on boats over the last six months or so, we are in a position now where that, that, that enormous margin expansion should reverse. And it could easily take two, three, even four percentage points off of core inflation over the course of the next 12 months. Now, it kind of surprises me that the Fed isn't talking about this. I'm sure they know it's going to happen. But, but this margin expansion and contraction story, to me, has been the big driver of inflation on the upside and will be the big driver of inflation on the downside. Of course, the problem is, you know, for, for an investor in in, uh, in, in the consumer sphere, you're looking at retailers, Target, Walmart, we've heard all about them, facing a margin squeeze of really quite substantial proportions uh, over the course of the next year. But, uh, you know, again, this, from the Fed's perspective, this is, this is good news because this is what we need to renormalize inflation, to get margins back to something that's recognizably normal. It's a long way off, but the, the return of inventory uh, and the excess of inventory is what's going to bring about that margin compression and drive inflation down a long way. Can we talk about some almost good news? If only football games ended in the 54th minute, Kieran Trippier putting you up against Manchester City. <laughs> Ian, what a beautiful thing that almost was. Yeah. That's all we get, uh, is well, it? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing for, uh, when he scored. It was right in front of me. Oh, were you there, <laughs> Ian? Were you in the stadium it yesterday? A, it was the best day at St. James's for a long time. I is, was there, yes, it was marvelous. Why are you happier? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, he is. I mean, I mean this I'm is important happy. to you, too, because I'm going to be in the surveillance uh, nap. But advise us on this game today, Liverpool and the other Manchester. Is this like a huge deal? Oh, Tom, they lost the first two games of the season, Manchester United, and they're going against one of the best teams in the Premiership, against Liverpool a little bit later. I imagine they're going to get crushed based on really? recent performance. Like, I does imagine the, they are. Does the coach go, Ian? 
Oh, it's a little bit too early for that, Tom. Uh, I think not it's a little quite, bit too not, early for Not that. this early, a bit, bit early, but yeah, a bit early. But if it carries on, then yeah, it's a mess. Ian, awesome to catch up. Ian Shepherdson, Newcastle supporter. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, it has been far, far too long, Peter Trubowitz, Professor of International Relations at LSC, and of course with Chatham House, and of course an affinity to the University of Texas as well. Professor, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. What happens after six months in a war? What happens now to the two forces of this war in Ukraine? Well, Tom, I first want to just go on record saying I'm an old-time Mets fan. So I appreciate exactly what you had to say there. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Peter. You know, I mean, it's pretty damn clear that this war is going to continue going on. It's a, it's a long slog. I think the thing that caught my attention over the weekend, actually, I guess it was announced on Friday, was that Biden was going to send another $775 million in military aid to, um, to Kiev. And I, I think the timing of this is, is no accident. It's, it's, it's both symbolic and, and it serves a practical, strategic purpose. Um, symbolically, uh, Wednesday is Ukrainian Independence Day. It also, you know, as you're suggesting, is coincidentally the six-month mark in a war that I think most analysts thought was going to be a romp for Moscow. And so I think in a way this is, you know, the administration is trying to underscore its commitment to Ukraine's security and acknowledge really Kiev's tenacity in the face of long odds. But I want to pick up something that John began with at the start of this segment, which is recession, because I think the administration's announcement also comes at a time when European financial and political support for the Ukrainian case, I would say it's flagging. I mean, European military commitments have not increased since um, April. Arguably, they're on a downward trend. And European support for the war is not as stout as it was in the spring. 
And partly this is because of concerns about inflation, the price of food, the price of gas that you were talking about in the last segment, um, but also fears of recession, which are, you know, fairly widespread in Europe at this point. Peter, how does the bombing of uh, in Moscow that killed Daria uh, Dugina change the conversation? There was a lot of speculation over the weekend that this could harden the nationalist sentiment and harden it against both Ukraine and the United States. What's your view on how it sort of changes the narrative? You know, I mean, speculation about the the attackers and and how Putin is going to respond is rife right now on Twitter. I'm sure you're following it. I mean, one thing I think that's pretty clear already from the ta- the attack is that Putin's regime looks a little weaker today than it did before the attack. I mean, whether it was the result of a Ukrainian strike, I doubt it, but that's out there, of course, or rivalry within the Kremlin, or domestic resistance to Putin's nationalism, the fact is the attackers succeeded, um, and uh, and this is going to fuel doubts about Putin's ability to guarantee security for those aligned with him. He'll look for some way to strike out, you know, perhaps against um, Kiev. Yeah. He has plenty of reasons for doing that this week, though, as a interrupt. Independence Day there, but I think this perhaps adds some fuel to that fire. On the flip side, Peter, there is this discussion, and we heard about President Biden having discussions with a number of the Western allies about reinstating the Iranian nuclear deal, and that's gaining steam and giving some support, uh, and the reason why perhaps oil prices are dipping just a touch, at least that's what the narrative will tell you. How much can that actually replace Russia? Does that further isolate Russia as a pipeline for Europe going forward? I mean, I, I, first of all, I don't think there's going to be an agreement anytime soon. Maybe I end up eating those words, but he's got a lot of people to placate inside the, inside the region. And it's just hard for me to see from a political standpoint, domestic political standpoint, Biden pushing for this before the midterm elections. After the midterm elections, yeah. You know, then I can see them moving on it. That's not to say there's a lot of interest and push inside the administration to make this happen, partly for the reasons that you suggest, alternative sources of energy, but I think uh, also because they think it was a mistake fundamentally to undo the agreement that was struck during the Obama years. Peter, just awesome to catch up with you, sir, this morning. Thank you. Peter Tribuitz there on the latest in Europe, Ukraine, Russia and beyond. You had a big final, Tom. The Champions League 2019. Yeah. I remember that, of course. You know, as we get prepared for today, we have to remember there was a point where Man U defeated Tottenham. It was one of the worst defeats ever. I called in sick that Monday. It was April, I think, of 18 or 19. I don't remember any of this, Tom. Alexis Sanchez just just killed us. I don't remember any of this. We were going to beat Chelsea, but we couldn't beat Chelsea. Okay, we're talking about Tottenham, but ultimately we're actually looking forward to a bigger game, Tom, at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Today. Jordan Rochester will be watching in England. He joins us now with a sharp research note from Nomura International. This is required listening for Global Wall Street. Jordan, I want to know the why right now. The partial differential, is the euro weaker or is this just dollar flight is witnessed by strong Swiss franc as well? Well, I think what Jane Foley was saying before we came on, it has been, been really surprising how, yeah, euro is through parity, but 
It has been mostly a dollar story. Euro hasn't underperformed as much as I think it should. I think the, the FX market is totally mispricing the situation in Europe. I think credit markets are doing a better job at pricing in the risk. We're seeing credit spreads widen. But in European equities, they essentially say it's going to be a mild slowdown towards average growth in Europe, where every single day we're seeing violet hills in terms of the energy price spike. It's getting worse. Uh, the situation for European energy markets, if you look at the past 22 days, 22nd of August today, check the date when I say that, 80% higher energy prices this month alone, 80%. And we've been talking about this for months. They were awful before we got to August. Now 80% higher. So if governments do nothing, the UK household, if they have no subsidies, and we know they will have, but imagine the world where they don't, they'd be spending 20% of their disposable income on energy bills for just turning the lights on and heating in their homes. So the situation is a complete rethink of the economic model in the Eurozone. And I, I'm just, it is struggle. It's strange for all of us to see the Euro selling off so slowly. I think it should be much faster. We'll be testing 97.50 down towards 95 cents in the next few months. So you think maybe get down to 95. I guess I would ask off the back of that, Jordan, does interest rate policy even matter in this world to this currency, given we're expecting 50 basis points again on September 8th? Yeah, there is one central bank that matters, which is the Fed. If you look at FX, what's been quite strange is idiosyncratic stories in Europe and all the detail we can go into have been largely irrelevant for the past few weeks, at least. All you needed to know was what's going to happen in U.S. rates and you knew where Euro dollar, where cable was going to go. I think in the winter, it'll be so obvious to everyone there is an extreme recession taking place in Europe that those idiosyncratic factors, this energy story, what's going on for the European consumer will matter. The other factor to take into account is that it's not just about what the ECB does and what the Fed does. You have to take into account the market's inflation premium. So a lot of questions this morning from clients and investors why is the euro lower when spreads would actually say nominal yield spreads would say euro dollar should be higher well it's because there's now a large inflation component in yields of egbs and uk gilts you have to treat it a bit more like an emerging market their rates markets are selling off and the currencies are heading lower that is very different to what we've been used to for the past 20 years Jordan, the fact that you think that the euro is wildly mispriced, or the market has underplayed some of the weakness, is in stark uh, divide with what we heard from Ian Shepherdson earlier on the show. He said, if you're not expecting recession in Europe, you haven't been paying attention. What is the uh, distinguishing feature of why you think there has not been the recognition that you're talking about in the currency markets to date? Well, I think the market's just been looking at the Fed. And we had that CPI number and the market pricing a Fed dovish pivot which kind of has come out the price a little bit. We've seen the rate cuts for last for next year. At one stage, it was 75 basis points priced in. That's now eased off quite a bit more. It's below 50 basis points, I think, this morning. But essentially, the markets are feeling pretty yellow about the Eurozone, but it's only credit that seems to be reflecting it. And eventually, it will feed through to the other markets. It happens all the time. Markets are not perfect. They're not always rational. And they just sometimes need to be given the alarm bells, such as the ECB, for example, do we really think they're going to keep raising rates next year if there's blackouts in Germany? So that could lead that could be one of those trigger moments when the lights are literally turned off for German industry or parts of it, where it just becomes unfeasible for euro to keep the levels it's currently at. Jordan, this raises an important question, and I'm not comparing the two situations. I just look for a catalyst. Back in the pandemic, we all saw this risk brewing and the market was unshaken, unmoved. And I think it was that weekend when Italy shut down that people woke up on Monday morning and thought, wow, this is real. It's coming and it's probably going to come to the United States as well. Jordan, with that in mind, 
are you thinking of that kind of catalyst? Because like you say, all of this is so obvious. We're seeing it play out. You can see it on the screen. You see it in the numbers, in the price of gas, and yet very calmly, very slowly, just sort of breaking down again. What's the catalyst, you think, that's going to lead to the wake-up call? I think you're right there, John. I think the human mind is a part of the reason why it's difficult for markets to price us in. We are linear animals. We think in linear terms where these energy prices are rising exponentially. It's just really difficult for us to comprehend the impact of it. There's another aspect to it as well. We do expect that governments will step in. If they don't, they'll be risking civil strife, essentially. So there is an aspect of the market which says, don't worry, it is pretty bad in energy, but they're going to do something about it on the government side. The point I'm making is when energy prices keep rising, it's 80% in the past 22 days. It's really difficult for governments to keep up with those sort of moves. And supply is the problem uh, and price is the problem. So there's two aspects of that. The trigger could be, John, essentially when Germany triggers phase three of its gas ration plan. At the moment, it's slowly going to give the costs uh, to consumer. We've had some mixed moves from Germany. So we've got an energy levy coming in in October, but they're also cutting VAT. So it's kind of offsetting it to some extent. When phase three comes in, the government actually just needs to do demand destruction policies, literally saying you there, you can't turn on your industrial plant. You need to turn down your gas usage. When that happens, it becomes much clearer to everyone that the Eurozone will use a lot more imports to help their supply chains continue. Factories will still want to keep producing, keep their jobs. But for certain like products like steel, aluminium, glass, ceramics, plastics, chemicals, anything that's at the lower end of the supply chain, but very highly energy intensive, or just get imported from America, from China, where energy is much cheaper, yeah. and that's going to weigh on the euro even more. Jordan, I've got 10 seconds. Price target, Manchester United, May 2023. What are you thinking? <laughs> May 2023. Season's uh, over. Where are we going to be? For relegation, uh, oh. fans still annoyed. Fulham Rochester, Amora. <laughs> Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Right now, without question, our conversation of the week on China. Leland Miller is co-founder, chief executive officer at China Beige Book International. More than anyone I know is wired into the minutiae of China. Leon, do you believe the GDP numbers? Do you believe the new regime under 5%, under 4%, three-ish GDP? 
I don't even think we're going to hit 3%, but it is notable that the data have gotten, the official data have gotten more honest, which is why people are coming around to the idea that, wow, this really is a very weak economy. Uh, they're, they're, they're lying a lot, lot less about, uh, about the numbers. And so people can actually see how weak consumption is, how weak the property sector is, you know, how weak every aspect of the entire economy outside exports has been, and even exports now are, are, are fading. So, uh, you know, the, the data, the data aren't great, but what they are signaling is that it, not only you're nowhere near the 5% GDP, I mean, you're you're probably significantly less than half that at this point. Leland, are we also seeing how little power uh, the PBOC has to really stimulate an economy that already has gotten some stimulus and hasn't really responded? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the story actually goes back about, you know, six to 12 months on this, because when we were at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, we actually saw loan demand uh, increase from firms across the country. We saw four straight months where loan demand was increasing. And I think firms were starting to get back into it, maybe because it was a party Congress year, maybe because they they saw some of the uncertainty going away. But then the COVID lockdowns hit and they, they, they were strangled through that for several months. And then even when the lockdowns have eased, you've seen a, you know, a refusal to get back in it and borrow and invest and hire. So now that they're dropping rates, you know, had this been done nine months ago, I think you would have had a, uh, some sort of kick from it. But right now, all they're trying to do is staunch the bleeding. Leland, with all of the investors who you speak with, all of the private uh, sector, how much is there a recognition of the reality that you're telling them? How much is there a recognition of what the ramifications of China's slowdown in a much more extreme fashion will have? We, we have been screaming into the wind on this. I, I think people are starting to get this now because the government itself is admitting that the economy is an extraordinarily weak position. But, you know, th two months ago, four months ago, six months ago, we'd sit on panels and people on our left would say there's a there's big stimulus coming. People on our right, the big recovery is coming. Party Congress here, all the old uh, all the old platitudes about how the economy would get better simply because of the politics of the country dictated it. Uh, that's not the world we live in right now. It's not the Chinese economy that we're tracking. So, you know, I think only when the government started to admit that, look, July got worse than June, lockdowns are easing, the economy's getting worse. All of a sudden, a lot of light bulbs going off uh, around the world right now. Leland, I want to talk about an idea that I learned from the engineer from Lyon, Jean-Claude Trichet. He would talk about how you diffuse policy and economics through a system. You diffuse productivity. You diffuse a fiscal impulse. How does Beijing, given their artificial structure, diffuse a large fiscal plan? How do they actually do that? Well, I think they're going to have a very uh, hard time doing any type of stimulus, fiscal or otherwise, until they until COVID's gone, until COVID zero's gone, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of that happening. You know, right now, you know, lockdowns are easing, so markets thought, oh, well, we're going to see a big bounce back. But what firms are telling us on the ground is they don't want to borrow, they don't want to invest. That now they don't want to hire, which is something new, because they don't see this COVID zero nightmare ending anytime soon. Unless you convince businesses that things are going to get better, you convince consumers that they should be spending. Unless you, you can convince China people in China writ large that there's that there's uh, improvement coming and not more lockdowns, you're going to have a very hard time stimulating the economy, no matter what your vehicle for that is. Meanwhile, I've been sp uh, focusing all morning, Leland, on the drought and the heat wave that's been taking place across the world, and it's having very real. Uh, 
ramifications, not just on food supply, but in China on industrial output. You're seeing this in Sichuan in particular, with them halting production in certain areas because they want to try to save energy at a time when a lot of people are requiring air conditioning. How much is this a smokescreen to cover just a lack of demand and a lack of workers? How much is this something that's very real that will further disrupt manufacturing? No, I think it's very real, uh, you know, it, and it's and it should be concerning people a great deal, because what has held up the Chinese economy for the last two to three years? It's been big time production. It's been manufacturing. It's been exports uh, while while everything else has been weak. Property and retail and services have just been just been a mess. So what has held the Chinese economy up? It's It's been this production. Now you're getting hit production on one side from the heat waves that are that are shutting down hydropower production and, and, and uh, causing all kinds of uh, problems from that. And on the other hand, you've got a global slowdown. So the demand is faltering around the globe. Uh, This is very concerning. China has got a lot of problems uh, to worry about right now, not just the normal one, two or three. Leland Miller of the China Page Book International. Leland, awesome. Good to catch up, sir, as always. What we're going to do because of the urgency and battle over bulls and bears is keep the baseball talk to a minimum. Douglas Cass, we can do this because big series, Mets playing 642 ball, Yankees playing 607 ball. Uh, Are the Yankees done, Doug? Uh, The market might be done, though. Okay, let's switch right now. (laughs) There's little joy in Mudville. You will probably not be surprised when I'm thinking – more about the uh, Massapequa Little League team in Williamsport than the Bronx. And the there we go. <laughs> there we go. And it was good to see Baltimore, Boston, uh, in honor of all of that. Doug Cass, let's cut to it right now. Why are the Bulls wrong? Well, I'm thinking also, um, as it relates to the market, about that great song from 1934 the, from the Broadway show, Anything Goes, Cole Porter's You're the Top. Cue Tom Keene and his melodious <laughs> voice. Or maybe we should wait for Ethel Merman. Um, but seriously, I think there's a non-trivial chance that the S&P early last year made a top for the balance of the year. Um, to me, after the recent, what I described as a position-based rally, uh, Bramo talked about that this morning, which was expected and discussed uh, in my last interview, risk has returned to risk assets as the fundamental backdrop is eroding at a time in which Stocks have rallied dramatically, mm-hmm. and now we have, as you noted on Friday, a VIX at 20, and that position-based rally and squeeze is likely over, and stocks have to justify further gains right. based on fundies and macro. In my view, the available opportunity set of six weeks ago has likely come and gone, and we have going to see a heightened okay. regime of volatility. So um, I, I think an important – one thing that you guys don't mention that much is Tina – and I think Tina is dead. There is now an alternative in terms of history. The differential between the yield on stocks and the yield on bonds right. that exists today is unco- <clears throat> uncomfortably wide. The S&P dividend yield has recently fallen from 180 to 1.52% at a time in which the two-year U.S. note okay, Doug, um, was gone from 0 to 3.3%. I want Just because of time, I want Paul to get in here. Doug, very quickly here, Ben Laidler reaffirms his love for the large big decks, and you know how narrow this bull market advance was wrapped around four or five stocks. What does that narrowness signal to you? And that's a real negative, and I think you have to avoid big techs. In fact, we have new, two new big techs shortly, uh, early last week in Microsoft and Apple. Um, 
and we're Shorts. concerned about the strength of the, yeah, and we're okay. concerned about this continuing strength of the U.S. dollar, which you've noted uh, incessantly this morning, the stickiness of inflation. And um, I have one interesting note is that the monthly rate of increase in the PPI has exceeded that of the CPI for 19 consecutive months. And this means that corporate profitability, especially high growth tech and profit margins are living on borrowed time and are not likely to meet the optimistic consensus expectations. That's something that Ian Shepardson also discussed this morning. So we see a vulnerability in S&P profits. I would note that only 57% of the companies that reported in the second quarter have beaten and mm. sales estimates, uh, their sales and profit estimates, it was over 72% in the previous quarter. And I think one out of every five companies lowered guidance. And if you take out the robust energy profit contribution to second quarter, S&P profits overall right. energy was yep. down 3%. Paul, so, jump in here. So, Doug, do we retrace, do we retest those June lows in the S&P 500, do you think? I, I, no, I think, that, as I said, I, there's a non-trivial chance that we've seen a high for the year. I personally don't think we're going to retest, um, but I, I am concerned about the the magnitude of the overbought Paul last week. Um, I remember talking to you in June. When I was buying when two percent of the S and P index components traded above their daily fifty-day moving average, and last Tuesday that moved to eighty-six percent. Wow! Uh, and last week was the, only the thirteenth time in two decades that ninety-eight percent of industry groups closed above their ten-week average. Uh, that, too, is an extreme overboard. And in the last 110 years of data, no bear market has bottom at 20 a P, not even close. So I think there's a lot of vulnerability to the downside. There's certainly an unfavorable reward versus risk. So do we just trade this market until we get a better sense of where the Fed is going? And it, it kind of feels like you're talking about, a you know, kind of a, a reasonable trading range, but one that can be traded, I guess. I think we're at the high end of the trading range, Paul that will move towards the lower end, and I think we're probably destined to be, uh, let's say, S&P yeah. 3850-4100 for the balance of the year. Well, let's go to that right now, SPX 4166 off of Mr. Cass's 3850, down negative 400 points, 33298. The VIX 23.36, excuse me, 22. Yes, I got that right. Yeah. My eyes are glazing over because I'm still worried about Bucky F. Dent. 23.36. <laughs> Paul? Doug, what do you think about energy here? I mean, I'm looking at WTI crude oil below 90. It kind of feels like we've seen the high in crude, but the stocks, have they certainly had the, the strong move off the bottom. People actually talk about the energy space, and we haven't done that in a long time. Is that, I, actually, I was just started by OIH, which is the uh, energy ETF. Okay. For the first time, um, I think, in a decade, and I see right. it's down another 3%. I'll be buying some more this morning when we get off the phone. There are a bunch of areas that I like on the long side, although I have a substantial amount of shorts. Energy is one of them. Doug, we'll pause here. Go do all your trade yeah. on OIH. And um, yeah. You'll come back. I'm kidding. Doug, what, what, can you talk to us in the time we've got left about something so many of our listeners worldwide and certainly in the East Coast are, are just curious about which is the new boom in Florida. What is the character this time of the boom in Florida? I mean, you were there with Bogart and McCall a few years ago, but what's the character of the boom this time? I would say that the real estate boom, Paul and Tom, is extraordinary. Uh, I purchased my house on the, on the island of Palm Beach in 1999, 
it is up 17x. Wow. So what do you do? <laughs> and who is and who are these people? I mean, are, do you get the sense? I mean, they say that they don't have enough school. Here. They're moving from up here, but that's always happened. But do you think that it's sticky? I mean, aren't they aren't they going to wake up and say, well, you know, they are the hedge fund guys like me, but they're thirty years younger. <laughs> <laughs> What's a mistake the hedge fund guys like you, thirty years younger, are making right now? Lizanne Saunders had a great chart out today of the mood of alternative investments. What's a different practice now? versus when you were in your ute? Um, well, I think I've, I've, I've um, labored on the transformation of market structure, movement from active man- money management, investing to passive investing, risk parity, ex- the popularity and explosion mm-hmm. of exchange-traded funds. So I think the one mistake, and, and this is one of the reasons at Seabreeze why I always average into my longs and shorts, is that market structure change tend to exaggerate short-term moves. And those short-term moves, by the way, uh, can be weeks or a month, as we saw in um, in the polar opposite action in June and July in the indices. So I think it's important, the mistake to answer your question is to not take a full position at the get-go to average in because right. the market because okay. the market uh, market structure okay. is so different than when I was a kid, a kid or Peabody yeah. as a housing analyst. It was a few years ago. Doug Cass, thank you so much. Seabreeze partner, some wisdom there. He is a bit tepid, short on uh, the market. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.